I have the privilege this morning of introducing our guest speaker, preacher, before he comes up. Dominique Gilliard is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation at our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. He's the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. He also serves on the Board of Directors for the Christian Community Development Association in Evangelicals for Justice. In 2015, he was selected as one of the Evangelical Covenant Church's 40 Under 40 Leaders to Watch, and in Huffington Post named him one of the Black Christian Leaders Changing the World. Gilliard Dominique has served in pastoral ministry in Atlanta, Chicago, and Oakland. He er has earned two bachelor's degrees, a master's degree in history with an emphasis on race, gender, class in the United States, and a master's of divinity from North Park Theological, Theological Seminary, where he currently serves as an adjunct professor. Before Dominique comes up to st get started, we're going to have our scripture reader come up, Tim White. Come on up, Tim. He's going to kick us off this morning before Dominique preaches. Good morning, everyone. Our scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 10. There are Bibles in your pews if you would like to follow along, or you can pull it up on your phones. Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 10. I will begin reading. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become, excuse me, I need to move this paper. The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and flee the country and leave the country, excuse me. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their lands, excuse me, I'm sorry, they made their lives better. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> so God was kind to the midwives 
and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I bring you greetings on behalf of uh, the denomination and particularly our mission priority, Love, Mercy, Do Justice. Um, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Um, I used to attend this church back when I was in seminary, which feels a very long time ago. Um, and um, so it's really good to be with you. But in this moment, I want to talk this morning about what does it mean and what does it look like for us to choose love in the face of fear. This is a critical moment, not only that scripture highlights for Christians of all time, but when we look at the moment we find ourselves in right now in our nation, we are more polarized and captivated by fear than we have been in my lifetime, which might not be that long, but still, it's true. Um, and I think when we think about this question of fear and we look at this passage in particular, I want us to really try to put ourselves in the shoes of Moses' mom. You are faced with an impossible situation you are living in a society that has literally created a law that says that you must put your child to death. And you must do it exclusively because of your ethnic identity. You are living under the weight of systemic oppression and injustice. And in that moment, the question becomes, how do you believe that God is good? How do you believe that the gospel is actually good news in the midst of a society that is oppressing you and forcing you to put to death your beloved? 
Oftentimes when I used to preach, I used to talk about, for me, one of the most difficult passages in Scripture to live into is the Scripture that tells us that we are supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. Because when you live under the weight of oppression, it is so easy to allow what you see to dictate what you believe. And so in this moment, I really struggle to understand how Moses' mom mustered up the courage to truly believe that God was still good in the midst of this situation. And so as we put ourselves in that, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to, we're going to go through this Exodus passage, but I also want us to juxtapose this passage with what God calls us to throughout Scripture consistently, but particularly we're going to look at the book of John and try to understand what does love mean in the midst of a context like this? When we press into John and we actually look about love, I think love can be one of these words that we use all the time. So it can mean everything and nothing simultaneously. I love, people will say, I love donuts. I love my dog. I love the bears. But then you also say, I love my spouse. I love my parents. And hopefully you mean different things when you say <laughs> love in those ways. But let's turn to Scripture and actually see what Scripture has to tell us about love, particularly from the book of John. So when we look at the book of John, there's a number of different things that it tells us about love. First in John 13, 34 through 35, it says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if we just look at these two verses, there are a couple of critical themes that we should parse out about love. First, love is missional. Second, love is evangelistic. And third, we are called to reciprocate God's love for us, both towards God and towards our neighbor. And that's why we have the cross. And the cross has two dimensions. The cross has the vertical and the horizontal. And let's just be honest, in many of our faith traditions historically, we come from congregations that have overemphasized either the vertical at the expense of the horizontal or the horizontal at the expense of the vertical. And it is only the gospel when we live into both. When we keep going, into John 17, 31 through 34, it says, I ask, only, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in them you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as, you, as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and, I ha and have loved them even as, I, as you have loved me. So when we take this passage, we see a couple other truths about love. How we love bears witness to where our true citizenship lies. In the midst of a nation where there are literally laws that say that you can't feed the homeless unless you have certain permits in certain states. In the midst of a nation where we are told that we can't welcome refugees who are seeking asylum 
oftentimes. What does it mean for us to choose love in spite of legislation that might call us not to bear witness to our kingdom citizenship? So what we ultimately choose to do bears witness to who we truly are and where our, our allegiance truly lies. How we love testifies to the world who God is. Some people will, may never come to know or see God except what they see in you. So the life that you live is in and of itself evangelistic. When people look towards Christians, particularly unchurched people, which has increasingly become a reality in our nation, when they look towards Christians, they're trying to see what's distinctively different about who we are. And when they don't see anything distinctively different about who we are, they assume that there's nothing distinctively different about Jesus. So how we live ultimately bears witness to people about who God is and how God differently responds to the oppression and the injustice that we see in our world. How we love ultimately should produce unity. The purpose of love in this text continuously says is so that we may be one and through our oneness the world will come to know who God is. This should really rub us in a raw place when we look at the divisiveness and the polarities that exist in our nation right now. And our proclamations about love are ultimately, again, legitimated by our unity. We can talk about love all we want. We can preach sermons and sing songs about love, but at the end of the day, is our love producing unity? If it's not, it's not a biblically-based love. So given all of that, the logical next question is, well, what keeps us from choosing to love the way the Scripture calls us to? Well, obviously the Bible school answer is sin. And it is the real answer, but not just sin simplistically. Sin actually leads us to doing anti-gospel things. So when we look at this, sin keeps us apart and prohibits us from radically and sacrificially choosing to love one another as scripture instructs us to. Sin distorts our vision and causes us to see our neighbors in anti-gospel ways, especially across lines of difference racially, ethnically, gendered, class, we ultimately begin to start to fear our neighbors and look at them in ways that God never designed and intended us to see them. And then sin makes us self-centered, and this individualism results in us subscribing to a theology of scarcity, where we don't live into a Philippians 2 type of Christianity where it tells us that we are supposed to consider and put the interest in the needs of others before our own. But when we cling to a theology of scarcity, we say, well, if I put the needs of others before my own, who's gonna prioritize my needs? Who is gonna be concerned about me? And that's not what the gospel calls us to ask. I mean, even in Jeremiah, it tells us that we are supposed to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city and when we do that, we find our own peace and prosperity. But we don't believe that. So what we ultimately do is we seek our own peace and prosperity and then we allow some of that to overflow a little bit. But we're most concerned about ourselves. And when we do that, it prohibits us from actually bearing witness to the gospel in the way scripture calls us to. The next thing that keeps us from choosing to love the way the scripture calls us to is fear. Sin causes us to fear others, especially those that we don't know and aren't in authentic relationship with. 
We can see messages from the media that caricature people and make us think that all people from certain people groups or certain regions of the country or certain communities in our own state are like this. And we have this caricature, and that caricature keeps us from actually embracing and actually getting into authentic relationship with people who are different than us. Fear keeps us divided, and it prohibits us from boldly and compassionately choosing to love like Jesus did. And then lastly, fear creates these categories of us and them. And when we have us and them categories, what we know that we desire for us is never the same thing that we think about for them. It creates this sliding scale, and the inverse is also true. What's permissible for them would never be okay for us. And we have to be very cognizant of the ways that we're taught and we're socialized to think in these categories. Even when we talk about our homeless brothers and sisters, when we talk about our incarcerated brothers and sisters, when we talk about undocumented people, we, we are taught to think over and over and over again in these us and the, them categories. And it ultimately puts us on a moral higher ground than them. And ultimately, it legitimates injustice towards them that we would never tolerate for us. And so, how do we combat these things? Well, Scripture calls us again in John, but similar to John 3.16, that ultimately is the greatest passage about love, and I don't need to proclaim that one because we all know that one. But if we go to 1 John 3, uh, oh, 1 John 4, it tells us that there is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. It also goes on to say that the one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so what I want us to, to really hone in on is the way that fear and sin causes us to actually not choose to love. And the gospel is consistently commissioning us to choose love in the face of fear. And so this is really the situation that we, the people in the passage in Exodus find themselves in. But even before that, I want to give us one other way the scripture tells us that we're not supposed to give in to this way of thinking and seeing one another. In Romans 12, which is actually probably my life verse, Romans 12 too, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what it, the what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And when we have this conversation about what's going on in this, this passage here in Exodus, we see that the people in the Egyptian empire had completely been conformed to the patterns and the logics of this world. They understood that their safety, their security, that their prosperity was dependent upon the oppression of the Hebrews. And when you see this passage, it tells us that there were literally laws made that were um, laws that were calling all people in the entire nation to comply with injustice. The passage doesn't say anything about any Israelite who ultimately, I mean, any uh, Egyptian who ultimately raised a moral obligation to what was going on. You had to know that somebody within the entire nation of Egypt knew that it was wrong to put to death all boys of a certain ethnicity. You had to know that somebody had a moral conscience. Somebody knew that the law was literally calling them to enact oppression, death, and injustice in a way that was not 
aligned with the way that they were raised and the way that they knew that they should treat a fellow human being. But ultimately, because they were so saturated within the nation that was producing propaganda that led people to cling to fear instead of choosing love, they ultimately complied with the oppression because they were actually reaping benefits from it. And so what we need to know is that uh, we go to the next slide. This will help us understand the context of the passage that we read even more. Um, this is a quote from a theologian by the name of Daniel Grudy. Um, he says, in the Bible, Egypt is the first in a series of empires, including Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, that embody power structures that benefit the elite, enslave the poor, and dominate the weak. The notion of empire often describes political entities, but it is not limited to them. And this is the kicker. Symbolically, the empire represents any power that aggregates to itself the power that belongs to God alone, or any group or institution that subjugates the poor and the needy for its own advantages. This is what's going on in this passage. And when we see this, um, I'm not gonna really go through this, but just for a visual representation in the next slide as a reminder, scripture is explicitly clear about what's going on here. Um, and when we look at this and we, we remember what we just read about empire, there are a couple important things for us to take in mind. There are three hallmarks that I want us to wrestle with and really grapple with about what an empire is and what it means for us to ultimately submit to the oppressive uh, patterns and logics of empire. So empires are predicated upon fear-mongering. And we see this in the passage because it ultimately says in verse 9, Pharaoh said to his people, look, the Israelite people are becoming too numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. It's all about fear. Everything that happens, all the oppression that trickles down starts from Pharaoh's fear because he knows that his entire economy is built upon oppression. And ultimately, if he is not allowed to oppress the Hebrew people in this way, then the greatness of their nation, the prosperity of their nation is at risk. Second, empires are hegemonic, forcing people into submission through power and manipulation. In verse 11 it says, therefore, after what I just said in verse 9 and 10, therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And the last hallmark of empires are empires propagate, they promise peace, but it is a fake peace because the peace that empires promise is predicated upon war. You cannot produce peace through warfare. Peace does not come through bloodshed. But this is what worldly empires promise us. They say if we want to have peace, we have to have a stronger military. We have to invest more money in tanks and guns and armory. We have to ultimately fortify our borders. This is what gives us peace. Oppression cannot produce priests, my brothers and sisters. We follow the prince of peace. Everything about what the empire tells us peace is is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to understand the ways in which we're subtly and surely seduced into the belief that this kind of logic can actually bring about peace, prosperity, and stability. And so when we talk about this and we go a little bit deeper, why would a person 
who has a moral conscience in the midst of a worldly empire ultimately submit to this kind of oppression? And, uh, empires ultimately pacify their loyal citizens by intoxicating the masses into submitting to injustice and complacence with the status quo, even when they know it's wrong, by granting their citizens exclusive benefits. They help you understand, well, yeah, this might not be right, but look how comfortable your life is. Look at all the things that you can afford. I mean, even look at our own lives. When we think about things like our cheap electronics, we know that our cheap electronics in many ways come because of people in other countries who ultimately are putting their lives at risk to make our products cheaper. When we think about our groceries, we think about our brothers and sisters who are out there, migrant workers working in the farms, subjecting themselves to pesticides that are ultimately killing them. But we ultimately get a lower price on our fruits and vegetables. We have to understand the ways in which when we are disconnected and we are not in proximity with the people who are hurting and oppressed by the systems and the structures that benefit us, it is easy to turn a blind eye to oppression. Empires need to create division between the masses and they create a sliding scale of the haves and the have-nots. And when there is this distance between the haves and the have-nots, there is not that proximity, that relationship that ultimately causes you to raise a moral objection to the oppression that is transpiring. And then lastly, empires, they produce propaganda whenever they fear that they are losing power or influence. And that propaganda highlights and demonizes and scapegoats a targeted group whom they blame for society's problems. And they say, life would be so much better if this group didn't exist if they weren't leeching off of our welfare system, if they weren't the people who were here without paying taxes, if they weren't the people draining our economy. And we start to think about entire people groups as problems. And ultimately, when we think that way, it allows us to actually not feel the moral conviction that we should about the injustice that is enacted against them. This is not something that is just in scriptures, my brothers and sisters. This is something that we know all too well within our own nation. Let's go to the next slide. We know that this propaganda was used against our Native American brothers and sisters that ultimately legitimated the genocide that was enacted against them. We know that it didn't just stop with the genocide though, because after the genocide of the natives, the few who remained were ultimately forced, you can go to the next slide, forced to go into Native American boarding schools. And in these boarding schools, there was a cultural genocide that was enacted. As soon as children came in, the first thing they were forced to do was cut their hair. They were forced to disenrobe from all of their cultural garb, and then they were threatened to have their th tongues cut out if they ever spoke in their native language. The mantra of the boarding schools were to kill the Indian and save the man. And we should know going to the next slide, that these boarding schools were not disconnected from our faith, but they were ultimately legitimated through distorted Christian witness. Oftentimes, there would be signs such as this one in the boarding schools telling the children that they were doing this because they were learning to look to Jesus and leave their savage ways. But it's propaganda against Native Americans that ultimately paved the way for this type of injustice. 
when we go even further, we see that a group that we oftentimes don't talk about when we talk about institutional injustice and oppression, we saw the same type of targeting against our Asian American brothers and sisters. If we go to the next slide. I want you to see that there were literally professional cartoonists who were hired to create propaganda to depict Asian Americans in anti-human ways. In this first one, we see uh, a Chinese man eating a rat. In this next one, we talk about the Chinese must go because they're lazy and ultimately they were taking jobs from industrious, virtuous white men on the West Coast during the gold rush. The next one, we see that no dogs and Chinese are allowed. You see the dehumanization, the explicitness that's going on here. In the next one, there's this cartoon that was ultimately in the newspaper depicting the Chinese as lazy. People were just leeching off of our system, and ultimately, we must get rid of them. And then the next one, we see that there's this depiction of them as the perpetual foreigner, these people who would never truly be Americans. And we have to understand that this propaganda didn't just happen in a vacuum and didn't have any consequences. We go to the next slide. We know that for Chinese, this ultimately led the way for the Chinese Exclusionary Act. This type of propaganda ultimately leads us to cling to solutions that are anti-gospel in their nature. If we keep going, we see that in the next slide, we talk about how many of you know that our beloved Dr. Seuss was hired to actually produce anti-Japanese cartoons that ultimately paved the way for the Japanese internment camps. Our beloved Dr. Seuss was paid to create this kind of fear, this kind of animosity that led us to enact an institutional injustice that literally led to people being, again, just like in the text we read, marginalized exclusively because of their ethnic identity. It created an us and them, the perpetual foreigner, and then the depiction of them as subhuman. And so what it led to is Executive Order 9066. Uh, 9, At the time the Japanese internment camps were actually institutionalized, you have to understand that there were 127,000 people of Japanese ancestry in this nation. 120,000 people were rounded up, forced from everything they knew, and forced into um, not incarceration, I mean internment camps, these were incarceration camps. These people were taken for no reason but their ethnic identity, and it was never proven that anybody who was incarcerated ever committed any kind of criminal offense. And 60% of the people who were interned were U.S. citizens. Propaganda matters. When we go to the next slide, when I, th I, th I think for most people, the most obvious parallel to the story we're talking about comes within the African-American tradition in this country. And I'm not going to go into slavery, but I want to show you this picture because I want you to see the consequences of the propaganda. This is a picture of Dorothy Couts, who was desegregating a school in North Carolina. And every single day when she went to school just trying to get an education, she had to face this type of toxicity this type of hate. She was spat on. She was called everything but a child of God every single day just to get an education. And for some people, this might feel distant, a little far away from you. But for me, this hits very, very close to home because my mom integrated a school here in Chicago, an elementary school in Chicago. 
And she faced this every single day as she went to school to try to get an education. It got so bad that my grandma had to walk my mom to school every day to make sure that all she got were insults and spat on, but that she was able to come home that night. When we don't take seriously the way that propaganda and the socialization and the ways in which we conform to the patterns and the logics of this world distort our Christian witness, then we fail to press into what scripture calls us to, and we fail to choose love in the face of fear. So going back to this theme about love, when we look at John in the last passage we'll go to, um, uh, 1 John 3.16 through 18 tells us, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with only our words or speech, but with our actions and in truth. And so we see that in this passage in Exodus, this is what the broader community was failing to do. They were failing to bear witness to their faith through love. But I want you to know that the good news of the gospel is that God has power to show up and bring transformation and life out of what seems like an impossible situation. In this, we see that Moses' mom was faced with an impossible situation. And because she knew that she could not kill her own child because of a systemic injustice, she ultimately refuses to comply with the law. And I just gotta be honest with you, when I was younger, I actually liked this passage because it flew in the face of everything they taught me in children's ministry. It said, they always told us, always obey your parents. They said, always submit to what the law tells you. And it says, and under no circumstances do you lie. So if we actually unpack this verse, we actually see that all of those things are challenged. First, Moses' mom is compelled by the Spirit of God to break the law. Not only her, but the midwives are confronted by the most powerful man in the nation, and he ultimately says, when you see a Hebrew boy, you must put them to death. They ultimately lie to him and refuse to do what he told them to. And guess what Scripture says? The Spirit of God was so pleased that he ultimately blessed them with their own children. And in this... Not only does that happen, but when you see Moses' mom in this impossible situation, when you are faced with impossible situations, you do desperate things. Desperate things from the outside looking in, people will critique you for, and they will speak illly about you. What kind of mom would put their child in a basket and put them in the Nile River? Anything could have happened to Moses. He could have tipped over and drowned. He could have been picked up, uh, eaten by a sea creature. He ultimately could have been picked up by somebody like Joseph's brothers who intended to sell him into slavery. But ultimately, the Spirit of God navigates the basket to the one place in our mind that it would seem like would be the worst place for it to go to the very house in which the decree comes from that he must be put to death. But because of the power of God, that is actually the only place that he could ultimately find refuge. And when he, the, the basket flows up to the riverbanks, the one person that you think shouldn't find him, finds him, Pharaoh's own daughter, 
someone who was raised in a house full of bigotry, someone who you know was hearing over dinner conversation about how Hebrews' lives were disposable, how they literally just did not matter so we can ultimately put the boys to death. And in this, when she sees this Hebrew boy, and Scripture tells us this, she says, oh, this must be one of those Hebrew boys. When she sees him, she ultimately doesn't see somebody who's expendable. She sees somebody who is inherently made in the image of God. She sees a common human being, I mean, uh, someone who she has commonality with, and she has sympathy on him. But not just sympathy, she ultimately uh, identifies so deeply with him that she brings him into Pharaoh's house and raises him in Pharaoh's house. And I want you to think about how risky this was for her. If word gets out in the nation that Pharaoh's own daughter won't listen to him, he literally loses power and influence throughout the whole nation. She puts at risk her generational inheritance. She puts at risk everything. She could have been disowned, disavowed by her family, by somebody she didn't even know. But ultimately, when she sees and connects with this human being, she realizes that everything that she had been taught was a lie, and it was not what God had called her to. The Spirit of God troubled the waters. And as we uh, go, let's uh, turn to the video real quick. I want to help us watch this video that helps us to understand why being proximate, why her connecting with this Hebrew boy was so critical for her understanding of what the gospel was calling her to. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times we fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. You never stop fighting for your own. And that is the truth that the church in the West in particular has failed to fully grasp. 
I had a seminary professor who ultimately told us in class one day, he was just riffing off the cuff. He didn't even fully understand the depth of the truth he was speaking. He said, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. He said, that is everything except the scriptures. The scriptures actually tell us that the baptismal waters are thicker than our ancestral bloodlines. And it is ultimately baptism that must dictate who our family is. And if the church ever had that type of baptismal understanding of family, we would know that we can no longer respond to institutional injustice by saying things like, well, immigration, that's a Hispanic problem, or mass incarceration, that's a black issue, or Me Too is just a woman's issue. We will understand that we are inherently interconnected, and ultimately what happens to one happens to all of us, and we have a responsibility to step up and show up in ways that actually do not conform to the patterns and the logics of this world. We are called to be countercultural witnesses that bear witness to the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ. And when we don't step up and show up, the world assumes that God doesn't care. It is through our witness in the world, through our oneness, through our ability to see ourselves as family, in spite of the ways that the world socializes us to see each other as enemies or the other. It is through our ability to see ourselves as interconnected and to show up in that way that the world will come to know who God is. Scripture is very clear about that. It says, through our unity, they will know that you are my disciples. They will come to know who I am. So when we don't show up for one another like that, we are literally depriving people from the knowledge of who God is. And this is not just something I'm making up. When we go back to John in John 19, Jesus literally uses his last voice breaths on earth to help us to understand this message. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his, uh, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. And he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now get this. Jesus' mom is standing with her biological sister. One would think that Jesus would just assume that his biological sister is going to take care of her. But he ultimately is trying to reinterpret our understanding of family. He's trying to paint this picture of a baptismal family in this moment where he tells his disciple who is a, of a different ethnicity, who doesn't biologically belong to his mom, this is now your mom. This is now your son. And he takes it so seriously that he takes Jesus' mom into his own home. When you think about family and the ways that you've been taught to value family and show up for family and love family sacrificially, can you imagine the witness of the church if we were to expend that to our baptismal family? If we were to truly show up for one another as if we really belong to one another? And that's what the gospel is calling us to. And that's what the text is calling us to in Exodus. It's really asking us, is the gospel still good news when it costs you something? When you know that you're benefiting from other people's oppression, are you willing to divest yourself from those systems and structures and from those privileges to bear witness to who Jesus is? It is only then that you're truly willing to choose love in the face of fear. And that is the only way that we can be the transformative presence in the world the scripture calls the church to be. 
So I want to leave us with this question. Is the gospel only good news when it's comfortable? Or is it also good news when it costs us something? I gave this sermon uh, a couple months ago um, in Philadelphia, and this woman said, oh, when you were talking, you were telling the story of Moses and him being pulled from the water, I just thought about the song, Wade in the Water. And I thought about how important that song has been for the black community in this, this narrative of oppression and slavery. She said, but when you tell us about Pharaoh's daughter and everything that she put on the line, and how she only ultimately was able to connect with Moses once she actually identified with him and got proximate to him. I wondered, is this the way in the water for the church that's not black? For the rest of the church, is this a story that's literally telling us the power of what it means to wade into the water? To get close to people who we're taught to actually avoid and dehumanize and actually see as less than. When we get proximate, there is a transformation in our understanding of the gospel. When we get close to the people that this world teaches us to avoid, there's something that triggers and God unlocks a new revelation for us. And that new revelation calls us into a new orientation in the world. And so I'm going to close by praying that God gives us that new vision, that new inclination to actually get close to those people that we've been socialized to avoid. And I'm going to ask God to give us the faith of the midwives who are willing to resist oppression, even as they stand in society as the least of these. So... God, I'd just like to pray and ask that you give us new eyes to see the ways in which we have been conformed to the patterns and the logics of this world. I'd like to pray and ask that you give us your heart, that it breaks for injustice, and that you help us to be ambassadors of the good news, not only in word, but also in deed. Give us the faith to believe that ultimately when we put the interest and the needs of others before our own, that you are producing other disciples who are living in the same orientation and that when we seek the peace and the prosperity of our cities, that that is where our own is found as well. In your name I pray, amen.